Welcome back to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to like the video and subscribe for future content. For more information about our one-on-one coaching and other training or nutrition options, visit giftedperformance.com. Our newest feature, the Gifted Express, offers premium programming for bodybuilders, powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, and lifestyle clients for only $30 a month. Enjoy the video. We'll see you on the next one. And as always, stay gifted. Welcome back. Another episode of the GPP Gifted Performance Podcast. Giving you the knowledge, practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. We are going to start off this week's episode with a shout out to a viewer. Um, I don't have the viewer's name in front of me um, because I don't give a shit what his name is. Oh, there we go. I already cursed in the first couple minutes. Um, yeah, there it goes. His comment on yeah, our last Q&A podcast Thanks. was, and I want to read this correctly, it was boring. And, you know, we love to get feedback like that, um, that our our podcast is boring to you. Uh, you can go ahead and, as Paul would say, G-F-Y-S, homie. Go ahead and Google head, that. But, yeah, if it's, yeah, go find them. We actually got a we got a hate comment towards Dom one time. It was like take a shot every time Dom Dom says something in this episode, and it was that stupid episode where you were stuck in the uh, you were stuck in the coffee shop. Yeah, guys, we only accept positive comments. We only want thumbs up. We only want to hear that we are the best in the world. And if you want to say something other than that to a guy named guy like Paul with his shirt off right now, looking absolutely delectable. Take it elsewhere. It's all about positivity and good vibes over here. All right. Q&A episode for the day. We got four questions to answer. We're going to dive right in so we do not go over on our time because, you know, we love to (coughs) ramble. Our first question comes from Juan Pineda, frequent watcher of the show, at JSP underscore training. How do you go about assessing fatigue through a training cycle? So when you look at your client's training from week to week, how do you go about assessing fatigue? Let's start from a hypertrophy standpoint, and then we'll kind of move over to maybe like a strength and performance from there. So Paul, Dom, when you guys are looking at your clients' uh, training programs, how are you assessing fatigue? And are you even kind of like considering that fatigue when you are programming for the weeks to come, or is it like just a natural byproduct of training? Yeah, dude. So... I think the, the, so since we're talking about training and hypertrophy, I think the, the biggest thing is just the, the data that's right in front of you, you know, like what, what do the numbers say? Like, what are the numbers doing? Are you seeing trends? Right. So, I mean, if, uh, we're recovering well from session to session and we're seeing that we're pushing training forward. So more reps are being done, more load is being done. That's good. But you know, when we see those decrements in performance, that would probably be an indicator that we're not recovering well from session to session. So that could be presented as in like, they go in and uh, numbers, like they hit a certain set of numbers or reps or whatever on a specific week, then the next session or the next week they come in and performance is clearly uh, decreased. Or you may even see, fatigue through through a session right so maybe they gas out a little earlier in a session so that might be an indicator that a few things are happening like maybe they are under recovered or maybe they're just working a little harder than they should be earlier in a session or just doing too much volume over that session when you when you sit down to write programs the assumption or the way you lay things out is that they should be able to make progress for the next four to five weeks right like if that, they come out of the gate and they their performance drops off, you, is your first thought like maybe they came out too hot? So um, it, it really just depends, right? So yeah, the, the idea is when training's made that, hey, hopefully they can make it through this entire training block or very close to the end of the training block before we see decrements in performance or a lack of progression. Um 
So potentially they, they could have trained a little too hard. I, I try to ensure that from happening by giving like recommended starting load and starting reps, and, which is based off of previous performance or previous phases. And I even try to keep those a little conservative because I think it's okay to be a little conservative early in training because we are going to push things forward and we are going to work harder and eventually things are going to get really hard by the end of the phase, right? And I'd rather them not sort of hit that wall on week one or two, right? Um, so, shit, what was that last part of the question? Fuck if I know. Yeah, Did but sometimes things change in a client's gate? life too, right? Like, uh, and those, so those are things you need to consider and things you need to ask, like, did the client hit the road that last week? And did they miss a, a bunch of their food, have really sleep? Uh, I mean, really, uh, bad, uh, sleep conditions and miss a bunch of sleep, you know? So some things in a, did a person switch jobs, their steps increase a lot. So you want to consider those things too, because sometimes under the previous training phase or previous training weeks, you would think that they should be able to uh, recover from the block that you laid out based off of that data. But so many things have changed that that's no longer good data, right? Dom, you have anything to add? I have two follow-up questions. Um, I like to look at like there's like uh, how their reps drop between sets usually you'll see i can tell if somebody's fatiguing probably a bit too quickly if it you know first set is like a 12 reps and then the second set's like a seven they're maybe they're not taking enough rest that could be an aspect of it that they need to focus on a little bit more or later on in the program maybe there's just too much volume for them at this time and they're just not being able to you know keep up with it um i do think i think uh I think a lot of what is visually on paper that looks like fatigue usually comes from bad rest times. I think people don't rest long enough and then we mistake it as fatigue when it probably wasn't because when they come back the next week and do that same movement, they usually start off around the same or even better. So I think sometimes it's, it's got to do with rest, which I guess is fatigue, yeah, but in they're just not taking enough time between their sets. And then I think too, like Paul said, I, I like to start people off um, not as heavy because I can always tell them add 10 pounds yeah. rather than have to be like, all right, or we're just pull do back an extra rep or two because we started um, with too much. One thing I, I like to throw out there too, yeah. if you're, if, if you are looking at fatigue within a session um, and you do see a big drop off, those are follow-up questions I always ask like, Hey, did something weird happen here? Did you take shorter rest break or whatever? Or if you see the opposite, their third set, they just blow their first two sets out of the water. I'm like, did something happen here? Did somebody talk to you for a while? Did you take a longer rest break? You know, so getting that insight can be really important when you're looking at things like that. Are you guys standardizing the rest times here or, or are you kind of just saying, Hey, let's kind of rest as long as needed? I mean, I like to tell people, I like to tell people compounds, like listen to a song and then do your next set, like at least three minutes, just because like, I feel like with compounds, cause there's so much involved with them. Like you want to get a really good set out of it. Accessories. I guess it's more so like, see how you feel kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, I don't really tell people like times for that, but I think that is probably how I like what to I do wonder it is I if it matters it. so much, how long the rest is verse is the rest consistent from week to week, because you know, that might be some way that clients show progress from week to week is that they're just resting longer between sets. They come out of deload. They're in their intro week. They rest for 90 seconds between sets because they feel really fresh. They feel really good. They write down their numbers. And then in week two, that 90 seconds becomes two minutes. And then in week three, it's two and a half minutes. And then it's three minutes. So are you seeing an indication of progress based on the individual? Or are you just seeing the individual work the system and progress by increasing their rest times? I think that that's definitely an important consideration, but there are some self-regulators there too. Like you can't do that for every set for an entire workout. If you're doing appreciable volumes or else you're going to yeah. be in the gym, you know, you just made a one hour workout, like, or a one and a half hour workout, two and a half, three hours, whatever it right? takes. 
<laughs> um, but um, so I like to give loose recommendations, but then some qualifications for how do you know that you're ready, right? So I will tell people, hey, for a big, heavy, multi-joint lift, you probably don't want to take less than about three minutes, maybe two, but you probably don't want to take less than about three minutes. And for your easier single joint movements, um, you, you might be able to take a minute, um, one and a half minutes might be better, but even honestly, even for myself, I still like to take about two minutes for my single joint movements. Um, and then I explain to them, well, why? Because you don't, you don't want to still have a lot of fatigue to dis dissipate when you do that next set. You want to blow that fatigue off so you can get good work quality, good work volume. Um, but, and then we talk about how, you know, some of the, uh, the research showing longer rest breaks tend to be better for hypertrophy or whatever. But then I say like, Hey, these are loose guidelines, right? Like you, you need to go whenever you're ready, right? So if you're still breathing hard, you don't want to do your next set because cardiorespiratory fatigue might get in the way of the quality of that next set. Um, if you, uh, still have, synergistic muscle fatigue, right? So you just do a set of squats, your lower back is still screaming. It doesn't matter if your quads are ready to go. You, you might not be able to get the best stimulus you can for your quads on your next set of squats because your lower back sort of taps you out early. Or if your grip is fatigued, things like that. Like we wanna make sure that we're able to give a uh, high quality um, stimulus or high quality effort on that uh, next set how how does all of this change in the context of a fat loss diet a lot of people will say you know your volume tolerance decreases a significant amount when you enter a fat loss phase or when you enter a calorie deficit i almost feel like some people convince themselves of that and use it as somewhat of a kind of like an escape route for okay i'm in fat loss phase i can i can not train as hard or i'm going to be way more fatigued or i can't handle as much volume because yeah. I'm in an 8% calorie deficit or I'm doing 20 minutes of cardio four times a week. Yeah. I think a lot of people use that as a scapegoat to blame and like almost like mentally stop training as hard because they're in a fat loss. So like they think it's okay to get weaker. So because my last prep, I did not get weaker. My training progressed the whole way through. And I think it's more, I think that's a huge mental thing for a lot of these people. I think some obviously can't handle the amount of volume that's going on. But at the end of the day, somebody in a calorie deficit, for example, if they're dieting for a show, cardio is getting picked up. So their cardio fitness is coming up. So work they might actually yeah. be, have better sets because of that. So their work capacity is coming up as their prep's going on. Because you could take somebody in the off season that's like really deep off season, not doing any cardio, high body fat, their work capacity could be low because their cardio fitness is so low, affecting their you know performance in weightlifting. Versus the person in prep, they they yeah. should technically on so paper be my, able to do more. My biggest consideration for moving from fat loss phases or or calories changing, doing more cardio and stuff, is that you let feedback dictate the changes, right? You don't preemptively make changes because you're in a deficit. Now, later on in, in that dieting phase, that feedback may indicate that making changes could be a wise idea, right? Like if you're not recovering well from session to session, that may be an indicator that you may need to change the structure of your program or the volume of your program, right? If you're noticing that you're at the end of a contest prep, and fuck, I'm wasting a lot of time with my warmups. I'm so fatigued. These squats are taking forever. I don't have much gas left for the rest of my training. I think that I could get a better uh, stimulus and my training would be more efficient if I sub these squats out for hack squat. Then like, yeah, that feedback would indicate that. But yeah, definitely not a fan of making um, preemptive changes, you know? I wonder how much of that stuff can be kind of nipped in the bud just by setting an appropriate rate of fat loss or an appropriate schedule to stage. So you're not putting yourself in a position where you have to cut your calories so low, or you have to take your cardio so high that it's cutting into your training. Cause like Dom says, I have a rule, like 
if you're losing, I mean, if you come out of prep and you're not at least 85 to 90% as strong as you were going in, like you did some, like, especially if you're enhanced, you did some shit wrong. Like you, you did not do a good job of maintaining what underpinned that strength, which is muscle. Yeah. So I, I think that last thing you said is a huge uh, point, right? Because I, I would never tell somebody they, they, or I wouldn't tell everyone that they shouldn't lose any strength or anything, but it sort of depends too, right? Like if you have a lot of fat to lose, even if you give yourself the appropriate time, some of what contributed to that strength were, could have been leverages, especially on boy leverages. Like barbell movements, you know, bench press and squat and things like that. Like a lot of people will sort of realize that if they lose strength, it's on movements like that. A little less so curls or tricep extensions or lateral raises where the leverages are a little less of a, <laughs> leverages are, are a little less of a, of a a uh, factor in, in your performance, right? I so, think. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. keep uh, going, Paul. Ba- basically, going, I'm just saying, like, hey, you you might expect some uh, greater or even potentially more drastic changes in some lifts, and maybe not so much others. Paul's saying it's cool to sandbag it. Don't worry about getting weaker. Just take it easy. Do some high reps to tone and firm. <laughs> tone and firm, my favorite words. <laughs> You know what's crazy is people don't actually know the definition of what muscle tone is. Muscle tonicity? Um, but my thing, uh, I think you can uh, you can avoid the fatigue that comes at the end of prep just by being smart, like Paul was saying about movement selection. I, I, I feel like there's a certain point where you switch your Smith press to a machine press. You switch your barbell squat to a machine squat. And if you do that at the right time, you really never even feel the fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, Swapping that's... out some of those very globally fatiguing exercises that you have to load really heavy or, you know, they the weight itself is being supported by the large majority of your structure where you're just getting a lot of fatigue in a lot of areas and not doing the best job at actually stimulating what you need to be getting done. So that's why you swap out for exercises like hack squat that take the load away somewhat from your back. So you can focus on your quads, do more leg press, things like that. And something I'd throw out there too, is that maybe, um, some of these performance decrements or, or the degree of them might actually, um, be avoided by making the correct performance or training modifications such as that, or you may need to adjust your volume. If you're sleeping, eight, nine hours in your improvement season, but the end of prep, you're only sleeping like four or five and you're, you know, maybe sleep impacts you negative, uh, negatively harder than most people, um, at the end of prep or something like that. Uh, then yeah, like maybe adjusting your volume will kind of like save you on that. Do you guys get like complete shit sleep starting at like three weeks out, four weeks out, maybe even I, no? I was a piece of shit, right? So, oh my god, mine I was so up, bad. I picked up awful sleep <clears throat> habits my last year of college and my first year of coaching, and it took me a long time to fix them. So I went into prep on a bad foot for sleep, and it was just bad the whole way. Through. <laughs> I fucked it up from the start. Like, uh, yeah, I didn't wait. Just, I didn't wait until five weeks out. I just did a bad job the whole way. I probably didn't fix my sleep until like six, eight months ago. It was like two or three years of just the wrong thing i feel like dom gets good sleep dom looks like a guy who yeah. just gets good sleep i can see I dom like rolling like... out of bed with a smile on his face ready for the day i was sleeping pretty well during prep at least i was going to bed at like nine and waking up at like five six pretty consistently that is good that is very yeah. solid even now i'm in bed by like 10 people <laughs> will like text me and they'll be like are you awake and i'm like nope no <laughs> no i am not um, all right. Our second question here comes from uh, at C Charlie. Mote oh, wait, one. I do what? want to uh, I, I want to add some stuff because we talked about training. Right. But um, and I think training is your sort of best tool because the numbers say what they say, like some, you know, you, 
based on your goal, how you feel doesn't really matter that much. How um, you feel is a lie. <laughs> yeah. But I still think it is somewhat important to assess that stuff, you know, like where uh, I, I have a client whose training numbers can will look pretty okay. But if I hit him with too much volume and stuff, he's just like, dude, I, my, I'm like waking up a bunch. Like I'm not getting good sleep. Like I'm stressed the fuck out. And I'm like, okay, like. I, I might want to uh, adjust your, your training volume and, and we might want to address those components of fatigue. Right. But yeah, I mean, I just wanted to throw that in there that there's some other factors outside of just the numbers as well. Oh, I guess I did also mention like performance and strength stuff. So I'm going to TLDR that one and say, if you are getting too fatigued too early in the training program, it's pretty easy when you have performance metrics to look at. So like subjective ratings of intensity will be higher in strength athletes than you would expect at a certain point in the cycle. You know, they go in, they're supposed to hit a 405 pound squat at an RP of six or seven and they come back to you and they say, oh, it's an RPE nine. That's a good indicator that they may be a little bit more fatigued than you plan for at that point in the cycle and you may have to reassess. Like performance in like a competitive fitness is super easy because you can just look at like pacings on running, rowing, biking, things like that. So just those those ones are a little bit easier because you've got a lot of objective data to look at. Whereas in hypertrophy training, it's a little bit more subjective and based on how the individual perceives how they feel. That's my wrap up there. All right, Charlie Mote, now is your chance to shine. Uh, Charlie asks, where would a deload be more optimal than a training break? Why one over the other? So this is a pretty interesting one because I know Dom gives people training breaks and Paul gives people deloads. So you can kind of like, Paul, no, stop, (laughs) stop. You need to be in camps and we need a debate. We need a fight. So Dom is the complete training break guy. That's all he does. And Paul is always the deload guy. That's all he does. Now fight each other. And which one is better? Paul, we'll start with you. Why is your deload method, the poly rocket deload (laughs) method, better than Dom's lazy take a complete break from training method? I'm going to answer that completely differently than I was addressed. Um, <laughs> no, what, you know, what's crazy is, uh, I remember first, uh, getting into like deloading and stuff and people would say that it was much better to deload, right? That, um, you, you, your performance or your gains or whatever, things would be better. Um, and, but I've never really seen the, any data on that. Is there any data on that to say that deloading is better than just taking a little bit of time off? It's so it's, it's hard. Cause like the argument Let's for deload being better is that it's going to provide greater long-term outcomes. So you would have to set up a study where you had two groups, mm-hmm. one deloaded, one didn't, and you followed them in their training for what? Six months, eight months, 12 months to see which one got better results. Like good luck with that. So I, I, I actually can think of some scenarios, but the first thing I'd say is I I don't really like the question because more optimal than what? And so I think we need to think about like, what, what is the purpose, right? What is the purpose of the the deload to diminish some fatigue? That, that is sort of the underlying, you know, fundamental uh, of, of whatever you're trying to get out of a deload or a training break. So as long as you do that and you check that box, you're okay. Right. But like, how long is the deload? How long is the training break? For what purpose are you doing it? Um, you know, the, one of the few situations where I I would say maybe a deload is more optimal than a full training break, uh, would maybe be peaking for a meet, right. You know, get a little bit of tech, you know, make sure your mobility stays good, you know, practice some technique, um, don't get stiff, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that people actually call that a deload as much as they do a taper. Yeah. I mean, it's a four, I, I guess, you know, what, what is the purpose of that final week of the taper? Yeah. It's the Roth, same. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing that people are saying from a deload. It's to yeah. dissipate fatigue. And I guess a deload in a hypertrophy context would be that you drop off fatigue to ready your body for another five weeks of load, four weeks of loading, five weeks of loading, yeah. whatever it is. Whereas the taper would be like a specific drop fatigue, maintain fitness to express yeah. higher levels of fitness. 
And so I, I would say like when it comes to this question in terms of normal training and like the average person, like go with, with what feels better to you and, and sort of matches your personality. Right. Like, you know, if you know your training motivation and desire to train and, um, you know, how you're going to feel during and after that break is, is better for you, then yeah, take three or four days off and then get back to training. Um, if you don't want to be out of the gym and you feel like you need to keep moving or you feel like there's some sort of benefit you get there out of, you know, maybe, uh, injury, um, related things like, uh, was it sort of like rehabbing a little bit and getting blood in the area and, you know, keeping from getting stiff, then yeah, do, do your deload or whatever. Got it. Got it. Deloads are better. Cause they'll keep you from getting injured. Dom, any comments there? Um, you should just take time off, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I ask, I ask, how are you feeling? Like, how did you feel the last week of training? If they say like, oh, I'm pretty sore or I'm beat up. I, I kind of just trend to like, why don't you just take like four, five days off and then, uh, we'll, you know, start your next mezzo. But, you know, so one thing I will say is, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the people who have like nagging injuries end up wanting to take the days off rather than deload. So, um, th that I, I kind of can understand because they just want to get a complete break going on. But, uh, I like the, um, I like both. I mean, personally, I don't do deloads. Can I interject I take though? a week off. Can I interject gonna, on are that? Are you going to respond to Charlie? Because I have some responses mm. yeah, to Charlie. I'm you myself. Charlie, yeah. I would also like to add bark, 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 uh -huh. bark, 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 woof, woof, woof. So, so check yourself. The only thing I, I would say on that, and, and I think you're right. I think the natural response to having some nagging injuries is to take time off. But depending on the type of injury, sometimes that's kind of the worst thing that you can do. And you come back and the pain is just as bad or worse than it was when you left it off. There are certain things like elbow tendonitis that tend to recover a little faster uh, by doing some kind of movement, you know, light, light movement. Yeah, I would like to, I'd like to have Mike around for something like that. But I mean, my, my operating premise is always that motion is lotion. So the best thing that's going to make that piece of your body feel good is getting in there and moving it under some light load or no load, some simple mobility stuff, just to get some blood flow into the area and kind of get that perception for the individual of, okay, I went to the gym, I moved whatever it was around and it didn't feel that bad. I didn't experience that much pain because what's going to come in a couple of weeks is they're going to have to get back in the gym and, and load it again. Like they're going to have to actually load it. And what's going to be a better situation from a mental confidence standpoint, I've been moving it over the last couple of weeks and it didn't feel that bad, or I haven't moved it since it really hurt. And now I need to go back in there. I need to load it again at full capacity. One is going to feel a little bit better psychologically than the other. So, nah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here's here's a third camp here, and this is kind of this is kind of something that I picked up from Tom. And Tom, we know, is not a fan of the deload week whatsoever. Tom is of the opinion that instead of going from a deload week, you should just transition directly into the intro week for your next block. Intro weeks are inherently much easier training. There's probably some new exercises in there. So some neuromuscular stuff that you can get ahead of early on in a training cycle. So what would you guys say to someone who's like, you know, let's just skip over the deload altogether and go directly into an intro week. As long as it's properly planned. I mean, it sounds like to me, his intro week serves as the deload. He's just calling it something else. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's still deload. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what the work intensity and loading and volume and stuff is, but you know, Tom, what, it's always uh, maximal. I know. Right. <laughs> but what, what I would say is like, just because you don't have to, or don't need to, doesn't mean that it can't sometimes be a good idea. You know, there are psychological factors of, of recovery that we should consider. Um, the whole injury thing, like sometimes like tendon and, and connective structures and stuff and those tissues, um, you don't really know that when it, that, the I guess injury is around the corner until they happen. They take longer to heal. They take longer to adapt. Um, so like 
using them as somewhat of a preventative thing. And then also they're not hurtful, right? Like there's some decent data to show that you could take some entire weeks off of training periodically and not, um, one, not detrain that much, but two, uh, not, I guess, over the long term, make, make very similar gains, right? Or make just as much you would have gained just as much even training through those weeks. So it's at least not hurtful and it can be helpful in some ways. And then, um, but I have found myself with some clients, clients that I've had longer clients who I can trust, uh, their feedback on, uh, and clients that have, I guess, more or less just sort of paid their dues as well to where I may have them just skip a deloads from time to time or train a little longer. And, you know, I'm like, okay, you just finished this phase. How do you feel? Okay. You're feeling good. I, I feel good about your feedback. Let's go into another four weeks of training. And then maybe next time we'll take the deload. Right. Yeah. So TLDR taking it, taking it home, driving the point home. Deloads are going to be a waste of your time. Taking time off from training, also a waste of your time. If you're not getting better, you are getting worse. If you're deloading <laughs> once a month, that's 12 weeks out of the year that you are agreeing that you would like to get worse. So <laughs> skip it all. Roll right into your next intro week. And of course, as always, go to giftedperformance.com slash Mike Taylor when your elbows and knees start hurting so he can fix you up. It all oh, feeds just in. Plugging everybody it in. all just feeds into itself right there. This is a big machine. It is. It really is. Um, all right. Our next question comes from Austin uh, at WPB Consulting. Uh, he says, what are your thoughts on GDA supplementation during the off season? Dom has had come like, kind of like come full circle on GDAs. Used to not be much of a fan. Uh, started using them recently um, and thinks that they are offering some benefit. Dom, expand on that. Why have you come so far? Uh, well, I think... The GDA has to be a good one first. I think there's a lot of really big bullshit ones that have like really poor dosing of, you know, these supplements that help, you know, with blood sugar control. Don't be shy. Um, you can name names. I've been using Nuthix, um, Scooby's company. Uh, he has great supplements and I use the GDA Max from them. And I just use one with uh, a few of my meals a day and i dude numbers don't lie my reader if i don't take it uh is up if i take it it's you know down like at least 10 points and like yeah there could be some like you know there could be so many variables with that like how hydrated i am how much salt the meal had you know how depleted not depleted but like how you know how low my just serum blood sugar was before the meal um that all that all is going to take into account too, but I have noticed that um, I take one before bed and my fasting blood sugar has gone a lot lower. My A1Cs dropped 0.2% in a month, which is actually a big swing considering A1C is a three-month average. So to have it actually move after four weeks is pretty big. Um but again, it could be other variables of things I'm doing, but I'm sure it is helping. Uh, you know, I, like today I woke up, I today I woke up with a fasted in the 80s, and I haven't seen that in a while. And I I took one last night before I went to bed, so I don't know. Um, you know, all, there's other variables, but I definitely have became a believer in them. But I don't think well. So one thing a lot of people use GA, GDAs during is like carb ups for shows. And I think at that point, you should be pretty insulin sensitive to where you probably don't need that. In my opinion, at least, I think it's kind of like, why take the risk of like, I don't you don't know how you'll respond to some of these minerals and things in there. Like what if it messes with your stomach in the middle of carb loading right before a competition? Like, is it really worth it at that point? Um, I, but you know, my whole, my whole thought process is really low body fat, really low calories. Insulin sensitivity is pretty high. It's a re it's a big reason why you rebound with fat so much afterwards. Um, 
but uh no I've, I've definitely came full circle with them i think they actually do their job but they have to be properly you know dosed and everything has to be pretty good about them before we dive any deeper dom do you have like specific ingredients that you look for within the gda the one the ones that you do trust versus maybe the ones that you're not so sold yeah. on i think it has to have berberin it has to have chromium it has to have cinnamon and it has to have um I don't know how to say it, but it's like Vandalay, Vandalay something, Vandalay Sarvate or something like that. Um, that's the, uh, those are the four ingredients I think are needed in it for sure. And then obviously doses have to be pretty, pretty good as well. And what you can do is you can go over to examine.com and look at those ingredients. And what you will see on those, because I've looked those four up before, is that the human effect effect matrix, which is how they basically gauge how well these things work, seem to show either a small or a moderate effect in glucose control for all four of those. Vandalite, Vandalite, whatever. I don't even know how to say it, but mimics almost the actions of insulin. That that's something I, I wanted to ask you about, Dom. Is I I I would sort of think that it's important to consider what aspect of glu- glucose control you're trying to attack, right? Um, in terms of like, is it a is it an insulin mimetech, or is it for some reason just causing you to pass some of the carbs, or is it for some reason um, just causing lower uh, liver production of glucose, right? Yeah. Like you probably want to be somewhat specific depending on your reason for using them as far as which GDAs you, you use. Right. Yeah. And I think, well, the new fix one, I think is a really solid one because it, it covers a few of those aspects like Vandalite is a insulin mimic and then berberine it works like metformin. So it slows down liver gluconeogenesis so that, you know, you're not pumping out a bunch of glucose from your liver, therefore bringing blood sugar down. Then you have the Vandalite acting the way it does. And then, um, and then cinnamon and chromium, um, act like, uh, can, can help move glucose into a cell. So I think uh, that's why I think it's a really good, gda because it kind of covers all and their doses are pretty solid like he each pill is a 200 milligrams of berberine which is actually a decent amount and but like other companies you see like 50 or 10 Mm -hmm. and it's not going to do anything so something i'd like to throw out is that it, it just seems like a lot of people just take it because they think it's a good idea right like they're not measuring blood sugar or they're not doing it because of what their blood work reflects. And I don't think that's necessarily like the greatest idea. Um, but also I, I would urge people who are planning on doing these things uh, and using GDAs not to treat it as a bandaid, um, or use it as a, as just a fail safe, just because, right. Um, I would probably urge these people prior to doing that, like, Hey, keep an eye on your activity, your sleep, your body composition, because those are going to be like your number one tools to sort of influence, um, sort of your metabolic health and make sure that you stay healthy. Right. And, you know, and just for example, I have a client who had very poor sleep and is uh, fasting, uh, blood glucose, wasn't alarmingly high, but it was pretty high. It was like in the nineties and it was just like, why you're decently lean. Like why, why is this happening? This shouldn't be like this. And, and I couldn't really, I was like, I, I just didn't get it. Uh, it just didn't make sense. And, um, you know, so it's like, okay, like you can get a metformin prescription. We'll try that. And not much change happened. And then, uh, he's, you know, we were having a conversation about sleep. And so he started to take it more seriously. And we noticed that when he gets good sleep, his fasting blood glucose drops to like 70, 80. Right. And, you know, so I, I would address those things first, um, before you get some very small or negligible effect from, you know, just pounding supplements, thinking they're a fail safe. Yeah. I think when we look at the lifestyle factors compared to a supplement, regardless of how it's dosed, 
fixing your sleep, being physically active, monitoring your body composition, all of those are going to be orders of magnitude more effective than something like GDA, but a, a GDA might push it over the edge and offer you that small extra benefit that will actually help in the long run. And then you kind of weigh the, all right, what does this cost me in terms of like monetary commitment versus what benefit does it give me? Is that something that I can justify? Yeah. But what, what Dom said is actually funny about like people using GDAs when they're like peaking or when they're like deep into prep. They're like, oh, coach gave me a cheat meal. Uh, so I went out, you know, ate 1800 calories of like burgers and fries, but I brought my GDA with me. So I'm good to go. Yeah, bro. Save the <laughs> fat, man. Oh. oh, dude. I had a client one time. She got asked, does your coach have you on a GDA? And she said, no. And she's like, oh, my God, why? You should be on a GDA because they stop carbs from becoming fat. And Hell I was like, yeah. dude, this girl is so like, I was like, that is bad. Like, you cannot. This is what you think this thing does. <laughs> it's funny because we used to think that that was a uh, strong mechanism in humans because we saw it in rodents. But humans, actually, it's a lot harder for us to convert carbohydrate into fat. Right. Things that like stop digestion of a macronutrient are like very have like very bad side effects. So if you think back to like Alestra, the stuff they used to put in potato chips, that was like a fat blocker. It would like I think it like stopped lipase or rendered lipase like ineffective in the stomach. And the side effect was that you would just poop out oil like you would have oily stool. So, like, what would be the side effects of something that, what did you even say, Dom, stops carbohydrates from... Stops carbs from becoming fat. Oh, like... <laughs> yeah, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like you might as well take DMP at that point. <laughs> might as well. That is Dom's recommendation there. We're going to make that the caption. We're just going to clip that. It's just going to be Dom saying, might as well take DNP. Off it goes. <laughs> Paul, anything to add on GDAs? Anything to bring us full circle there? Nah. Nah. Okay. All right. Our last question comes from a person whose Instagram name is hard to pronounce. I think it's Zolent. Probably Zolent187. Zolent187. Zolent asks a good question. It's a question that I think we all have to deal with at sometimes with our clients or for people who are just getting into food tracking for the first time. Uh, Zalan asks, where can one get accurate nutritional information on foods? I think Dom and I might have answered this question on an IG live once. And Dom's answer in jest was something like, uh, check the food label. So that'd be a good place to start the food label. But the FDA does allow a certain percent of error on food labels. So how accurate is accurate because if you're looking for 100% accuracy then the food label is also not going to be accurate I mean, you're just not going to get it all right you're not uh, the usda.gov has a good database yeah so what i tell people to do because yeah you are oh, quiet all the, what i tell people to do because <laughs> I, you run into this all the time with clients and tracking macros um they just find the first thing that they see on my fitness pal or whatever that look the name looks good and they just toss it in there and it's totally wrong it's like white um, rice four cups 100 calories like, that looks good oh okay that looks I'm good gonna the, the lowest i'm gonna find the one with the lowest calories to track yeah i just want to throw out it's not that fucking hard like don't be fucking lazy um no, seriously, like, I mean, sometimes it's literally as simple as like, oh, let me turn this label around real quick and make sure it matches what my MyFitnessPal says. But yeah. like, do your due diligence, like just Google the fucking thing and like look at a couple websites, make sure a few websites match nutrition data or whatever dot com nutritionics and then, you know, the FDA or whatever. Cool. If you find a few sources that match or you find a few that are in agreement with each other, try to find an item on my fitness pal that matches that the God one that it. gets me all the time is cooked rice oh i'm done i'm not even gonna talk <laughs> dude that's the it thing cooked that rice gets me all got the a time problem are, are like meats you know that like or they'll count like they'll measure the uh ground beef cooked and i'm like hey man the the nutrition facts for that product on the label are for the form that it comes in 
Like when you buy food, that's, that's what the nutrition facts are for. Um, but yeah, man, or like people will, you know, cook the noodles and weigh it, but use the nutrition facts for like dry fucking noodles. Yeah. Like, Oh no, the I get food, four food noodles. Data central food data central is a good website. It's, it's the government's website for all the food. Like they have cooked rice here, a hundred grams of rice, white, short grain, enriched, cooked, and the hundred grams is twenty eight point seven grams of carbs. And I always thought a hundred grams of rice is close to thirty grams of carbs. Yeah. But then you see people post like, "Oh, this is how you measure cooked food," and I'm like, "Dude, that's not even close. <laughs> like, that's not even close to thirty grams." <laughs> Drives me nuts when people use like cups and stuff. Yeah, too. yeah. Like, just use grams, dude. Don't want to use the metric system. The hell? This is America. I had a client tell me. I had a client tell me. I has. They were peaking for. I had a client tell me. I had a client tell me. I has. They were peaking for a show, and I said, "How much water do you have left for the day?" Like, out of the, a limit I get. I said, "How much Stopping water down do at the local bar to get like, a pint." A limit I get. Like you, uh, he's from Macedonia, so he was like. Oh, you you Americans, I forgot. I have 16 ounces left. <laughs> <laughs> I always I always remember a pint is 16 ounces because it's a pint per pound when you lose a pound of water in training or in exercise. So well, a water six, bottle 16 a ounces in a pint. This is a pint, a water bottle. Really? I think those are like, I thought those were like 20 pints. ounces. Ah, yeah, it's a little bit more. It's a little, a little more than more. a pint. Yeah. All right, here's a here's a follow-up to this question. If you are being reasonable, if you're following Paul's recommendations of like, hey, if something looks a little weird, just like Google it, like check more than once on if something is correct. Does 100% accuracy in your food tracking even matter? Is it something that you should even waste your time thinking about or or trying to achieve? So I get where you're going with this, like consistency matters the most probably when it comes to change. So if you're wrong, as long as you're consistently wrong, at least when you change things <laughs> wrong you know, to a small degree, not yeah, like horribly yeah. wrong. So yeah, that, that's what I mean. Um, I think it can matter. Right. Uh, I think that that's stuff I try to nail early on because it, you know, weighing cooked chicken versus raw chicken like causes some pretty big differences that's a big difference i didn't say big differences paul i said small differences what the fuck well track the protein and rice i think oh, what kills dude. i think what kills me is like the meal plans that i get from like someone when they switch coaches and it's like all right my meal plan was four ounces of meat four ounces of carbs and a handful of vegetables the swing there on calories could be so insane. Like, I think okay, the ounces, the ounces thing is tough because a lot of scales don't even do tenths. So it's like it, it you don't know if you're eating three and a half or four, or you know, it could be just rounding up on a scale. If people are using scales without tenths, yeah, I was about to say some people have scales without tenths. I had a client ask me if mine measured in tenths, and I said, "Yeah, yours better <laughs> should do." <laughs> what? What? That's wild. Paul, what were you going to say? I was just going to say you need to get a new fucking scale if you don't have like at least a point something. Yeah, you better it. have like a drug dealer scale. Like when people come <laughs> over to your house and you're weighing out your food, they better also think, oh, this guy also like sells weed or something like that. That's how accurate you need to be. Especially, oh man, especially if you're like weighing out supplements, like don't, don't even use your scale that use tents. You need to use a scale that is oh, way those... more sensitive than that. Those like mini scales that are like they're like the actual big. the actual drug dealer scales. Yes, those ones. Those are the ones that you need. Because um, I've got I've got clients that are like weighing out like beta alanine before a workout, and they're like, "All right, it's at like two grams. I'm gonna add some more. Okay, it didn't tick over to three. I'm gonna add some more. It didn't tick over to three. I'm gonna add more, and then it ticks over to like six. And they're like, "Oh well, here we go. About here to get real go. itchy." Yeah, those scales that like you can't breathe on it too hard. Yeah, you got to keep your distance from it. So my input to Zolent is that 100% accuracy in nutrition tracking is probably something that you're not going to find. 
follow the basic, you know, guidelines that Paul has laid out here. And then Dom has also done a good job of like, you know, tracking your food, how to weigh your food, being accurate with that. And you should get 95 to 98% of the way there. If you're still not, you know, getting the results that you would think, you might have to look a little bit deeper Dude, you know what's crazy? what could be going on. It's like people, it'll give people so much anxiety that they just like give up, right? Like one, it's not that hard and two, it shouldn't give you anxiety. Like it's not hard to Google a few sources and like, it's just, fuck, just do it. <laughs> I think for brand new clients, it can be a little bit hard to go from like no nutritional like benchmark rules at all just like freestyle eat whatever you want whenever you want it doesn't matter to go to like weighing everything tracking everything knowing how to cook everything um it can be a lot all at once but luckily there are some kind of things like you said paul when you get them first started to kind of bring them up to speed in a hurry to kind of make that learning curve a little bit less painful yeah like read that part of your sheets that you get but I always assume shit. that I always assume that people that call themselves macro coaches, have you guys seen that people that just call themselves macro coaches, they're just out there like giving people three numbers and they're like, all right, go crazy. I'm not going to teach you how to track, how to weigh, how to eat reasonably. And if you fail, it's hundred percent your fault. They charge $400 a month for macros. <laughs> $400 a month. How many, how much is that per macro is, are we counting fiber? Because it's a hundred dollars, um, I think it's a hundred dollars per month per macro that they change. If we include fiber, it's one hundred and thirty-three thirty-three. If you're only changing protein, carbs, and fat, so on make the sure. fiber end is it insoluble and soluble? Oh wow, that's a lot of value that you would be providing right there. You telling them how much you know how much beans versus how much celery to eat? That's 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 serious I mean, two coaching. Two calories right there. per gram of soluble fiber. Yeah, you got to factor that that's in. That's another if, factor. Okay, if, what if they're drinking? That's alcohol, seven grams. That's too and much. Don't even, that's don't too even much. That's text, my next coaching package up. Don't even text me on a Friday night asking how to count alcohol, dude. You can't afford it. Yeah, we don't do that stuff around here. This is serious <laughs> business. You want to meet your goals? It's protein, carbs, fat, fiber. That's it for the rest of your life. You can also sprinkle in some water. Yeah, calorie-free recreational compounds only. That's words to live by right there. You can have a fun time for zero calories. So just adjust your preferences, adjust your morals, decide how you want to live your life. Do you want to be a dirty alcohol drinker that sips the devil's tonic? Or do you want to be someone who's out there having a calorie-free party time? Sort yourself accordingly. Let us know below. Comment below and say, I do hard calorie-free drugs or... (laughs) I prefer to drink calorie rich alcoholic beverages and we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll respond accordingly. Gentlemen, anything to add on the end of this or should we send it off? Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. This episode will come out on Thanksgiving. This episode's coming out tomorrow, guys, on Thanksgiving. We're recording this on Thanksgiving Eve, guys. That's a fuck dedication. Dedication. Thanksgiving. You can listen to it on your way to the biggest bar night of the year. You Yes. Meet with all your high school friends. You know, hook up with your ex-girlfriend from high school. Get her pregnant. Regret it for the rest of your life. Bar night in the world? The night before is the biggest bar night of the year. Thanksgiving Eve. the night before. Yeah. The girls are all working tonight. Partying. I think Lenny and I are going to go out there and rage a little bit. Crack some beer bottles over some high school kids' heads. Start some fights. The stuff that makes life fun, makes it worth living. Um, All right. That brings us to the end of our podcast. Took a little bit of a turn there at the end. Happy Thanksgiving from the Gifted family. We love you and we are very thankful for you. We'd be even more thankful if you dropped a like, comment, subscribe, sent this to all of your friends so they can learn a little something on this most grateful of day. Have a good one. We'll see you on the next one. In the meantime, hold on, Paul. Stay gifted. Bye. Perfect.